Well, picking up um, Genesis 7, verse 1, we were talking in the, in the last talk about how God focuses upon Noah. And we mentioned that thou in Old English specifically means you singular. And so in 7, verse 1, come thou, you singular, that is Noah, into the ark, for thee, that is you singular, you Noah, have I seen righteous. So then, he doesn't say, well, I, I saw your family righteous, and I really like you guys. He says instead that um, I have seen you, Noah, singular, righteous, and I rather like you. And so we see here salvation on behalf of a third party. And we talked in the last talk about how, in, in one sense, that is true of how we are saved, not that we are righteous, but because of our association with the Lord Jesus, and we also saw how, to a certain extent, we can save others if there is what I called a modicum of spirituality. And I mentioned Ezekiel 14, where we're told that, in fact, if Noah had been alive in Ezekiel's time, he would have saved nobody because they were so wicked. Implication being that he did save people who were not particularly righteous because they did have <clears throat> some modicum of, of their own, as, as it were, righteousness. or let's say, spirituality, faith. Now, we've said that Genesis is very much the seedbed for the rest of the Bible, and ideas that you encounter there in Genesis are later alluded to in, in Scripture and built upon. This whole idea of God saying, come into this ark, and I'll uh, lock you in and shut the doors around you whilst judgment comes upon the earth, this idea has got to be alluded to, surely, in Isaiah 26, uh, from 19 to 21. This is talking about ultimately the last days when the dead shall live and together with my dead body shall they arise, awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, and the earth shall cast out her dead. Uh, verse 20, come my people, enter into your chambers, remember how there were nests or chambers made in the ark, and shut your doors about you. God closed the door and shut Noah in, Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord comes forth out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. And that last bit is alluded to, I think, also in Genesis 9, where God instructs Noah about the, uh, the blood of man and, and of animals. So then... What is this implying? I think it implies that in the last days there will be a Noah's Ark sort of experience, that we will be saved, we will be, as it were, hidden in some way whilst God judges the earth. And that is a principle which you see in God's other judgments, which he has poured out previously, all of which point forward in some, day, in some ways to, to the last days. Got the, the whole thing really um, with God punishing Sodom, which the Lord says is typical of what's going to happen when he comes back. And uh, Lot is told, Genesis 19:22, haste, escape to, to Zoar. And the angel says, because I can't do anything to Sodom until you have, have gone there. So then he was taken away whilst the judgments came down. You've got a similar kind of thing in the, the plagues upon Egypt, 
where God's people are, as it were, hidden or miraculously preserved whilst these other punishments are coming down. Uh, Exodus 8, verse 22, I will sever in that day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. Another reference there in Exodus 9, 26. And I think you've got the, the same sort of principle uh, in Revelation 7, talking again about uh, the last days, where angels are flying around with great judgments. In Revelation 7, verse 3, and one angel says to another one, Hurt not the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, until we shall have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. This sealing is similar, I think, to the idea of the ark being pitched, the, the door being shut, Noah being shut in, sealed up in the ark. And we could bear that in mind as we, we think of, as we should do if we believe that, you know, we are in the generation that, that hopes to meet the Lord. That, you know, what is going to happen? There is going to be judgment. Judgment has got teeth. It's not that God is going to say, yeah, well, don't worry about it. There is going to be some equivalent of Noah's flood in our last days. Remember 2 Peter 3, that the world that then was was destroyed by, by water, but the agent of destruction that's going to be used in the last day will, will be fire. But the, the principle of, of destruction of the wicked, because of God's grief, which we talked about yesterday, yesterday previous study, uh, that is is going to have its issue. It's going to come to term in the last days. Then again in chapter 7 verse 1, you and all your household, and we've commented in both the previous talks about the tiny family size of Noah, that he just had those three children, had the first one it seems around 500 years old, and that people who were living those huge lifespans must have had uh, large families, and as in a lot of primitive societies today, he would have been seen as a very poor man. Uh, his wife may have been mocked, he may have been mocked, and it was the small, the broken and the despised who were chosen of God. And in addition to that, of course, his, his three sons and their wives, it's not recorded that they had children, uh, seeing that most of the people that we read about in the Bible uh, at that time, in, in the genealogies in Genesis 4 and 5, tended to have kids around 100 years old, uh, on on average. <clears throat> and those kids are born at 500, when Noah was 500, the flood came when he was 600. They would have, it would seem to me, only really just got married. But anyway, they didn't have any kids. That's uh, significant. And again, I think for three sons to all be married but not have kids, Again, this would have been somehow despised. It may be difficult in Western context to imagine this, because it's quite normal that people get married and, uh, and they may not have kids at all, or they may not have kids for some years and after they, they got married. But in a lot of simpler societies to, to this day, uh, like a lot of African villages, two people get married, and if there's no sign of a child on the way after a year, there's pointed questions and... Uh, prayers and all sorts of things. It, it's something that's immediately noticed. Now, back in, the, in Genesis there, Genesis chapter 7, let's have a look at verse, verse 4. For yet seven days, so you come into the ark, God says, come into the ark, for yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Then verse 10, and it came to pass after the seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth, 
And uh, it says in the, in the flood came in verse 13, in the selfsame day, verse 13, entered Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth uh, into the ark. So, what happened? He was told to go into the ark seven days beforehand because the water was going to come upon the earth. But actually, he only goes in there, uh, actually, the very day that the flood came. Now, in the New Testament, there is a, a double emphasis on this fact that Noah entered the very day that the flood came. I'll just bring that to your attention. Luke 17, verse 27. Luke 17, verse 27. They ate, drank, married, were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came. Okay, so then he entered the ark on that day when the flood came. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 38. This is not a parallel uh, passage. This is simply the Lord bringing this out and his teaching uh, a second time. Matthew 24, verse 38. This is in the, uh, the Olivet Prophecy. As in the days which were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall be the coming of the Son of Man. So then, he entered the ark the day the flood came. Now it's emphasized in the Genesis record, it's emphasized twice in the Lord's teaching in the New Testament. Why? Well, I think because chapter 7 verse 4 of Genesis says that seven days before the flood, God said, right, in seven days now the flood's coming, so please get into the ark now and I'll shut you in. But he doesn't. Why not? Well, I only assume that he hung around outside for those seven days because he was desperately appealing for people to enter the ark. We said in the last talk that Noah was the first one told to go into the ark and to take his family with him, but Peter perceptively, I think, points out that Noah was the eighth person. And I suggested that he actually put the others in first and went in himself last. So his focus was not upon my personal salvation. It was upon the salvation of others. Now, of course, our relationship with the Lord is, is intensely personal, and we long for his return so that we might be with him and be his, his people uh, and have this relationship with him personally between, between Jesus and Duncan uh, forever and ever. But there's such a thing as being spiritually selfish, whereby all I'm concerned about is my salvation, and if that's our mentality, if, you know, a lot of our prayers are taken up with endlessly begging God to forgive me and accept me into your kingdom, not, not, you know, not saying don't do that, but if that is our focus, then I think we are missing the point. We are missing the point that we are on his side and we want his glory to be revealed and love of him and therefore of other people is what dominates our lives, because he has so loved us, because we are certain and secure in his salvation. Like Noah was certain and secure in the knowledge that God would save him, and that's why he spent 120 years building an ark, um, because God had told him to do that, and he believed and took God at his word. He was influenced by God's offer of salvation to him personally to go and offer it to others. Uh, Jewish tradition, and it's only that, it says that he stayed until the, the water was up to his ankles before he got in. What does all this look forward to? Well, I think in the very last days, we should be appealing.
appealing to people with an urgency that we have never had as we sense the coming of the end to get into the ark. Now, entering into the ark in one sense is coming into Christ. Incidentally, uh, going back a bit in, in, in chapter 6, when he's given those dimensions of the sort of ark that, that he is to make, um, he's told in chapter 6, verse 15, it's to be 300 cubits long by 50 by 30. Now, 300 by 50 by 30, that in terms of proportion, in terms of proportion, is the proportion of a human body, 300 by 50 by 30. I mean, forget about the figures, I'm talking about the proportion. And I, I think that's interesting because Peter says that going into the ark is baptism, represents baptism into Christ. And so there was Noah hanging around for seven days when God said, look, seven days, it's gonna, the flood's going to come, so get in there now. No, 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 no. He hung out there uh, and only went in when the, flood, when the water started to come down. He was desperately appealing, I submit, for people to enter the ark. Luke 14, verse 23, go out into the byways and hedges and compel them to come in. Remember, the servants come back to the Lord and say, it's already been done. He says, look, go and get anybody. Just drag anybody in. You remember the story that uh, great, great feast been made, wonderful royal feast, and the guests don't pitch. They don't want to come. And so who's going to eat all the food? Who's going to enjoy this wonderful feast, this kingdom, this marriage supper, as it were? Go out and grab anyone in. Yeah, we try to, but uh, there's still places. Look, get anyone. So I think that there should be an increasing intensity in our appeal as we sense the end coming. And whilst the end may not come in our lifetime, we believe it, it will, and we hope it will, and we pray it will, and we, we suspect it, it will, but all the same, we can sense, I believe every, every one who's walking with God in our generation senses that the end is coming and that it is speeding up. Uh, Isaiah puts it, that he will hasten it in its time. Strange phrase, but I, I understand it really to, to mean that the sense of momentum towards the end will increase, and I for one can feel that. As I say, how long it's still have to, you know, we still have to cough and hack our way on on this planet, uh, as we are now, I don't know. Maybe not in my lifetime, but I hope it will be. But um, the point is that we can all sense the end coming, and insofar as we sense that momentum speeding up, we should really be like Noah, imploring people to come in. Right, chapter 7, verse, verse 4. God says, forget seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth. Now, the word cause, you can put a circle around that. I will make it rain. I will cause it to rain. I will send the rain. What else do you read about God sending his rain? <clears throat> well, it's in Matthew 5.45, and you might think this is totally irrelevant. And at first blush, it is. But I don't think it is. Matthew 5.45 says, God sends his rain upon the just and upon the unjust. Now, Genesis 6, verse 9, Noah is called, Noah was a just man, 
God sends his rain, that's pretty well quoting from the Septuagint of uh, Genesis 7 verse 4, I will cause it to rain, I will send, send rain. God sends his rain upon the just, Noah, and the unjust, the unrighteous world. But what's the point of all that? Matthew 5.45, in the context, is saying that God loves both sinners and righteous alike. I'll say that again, and I don't think it's difficult to perceive that. Um, I think you'd agree with that if you open Matthew 5.45 and read the context. God, God's love is towards both sinners and the righteous alike. So he sends his reign upon the just and upon the unjust in the same way as he sent the flood upon Noah and upon the unjust as well. What does that mean? As we said yesterday when we talked about the elephant in the room, we talked about this whole issue of divine justice and sort of why did God kill all those people. And I, I suggested that the flood was almost really an act of grace. It was an act of love towards those who had been preached to for 120 years and didn't want to know. And so maybe the, the point of the Lord's allusion back there to Genesis 7 verse 4 is to say that the destruction of the old world was an act of love. It's, I know it is very difficult to get our human minds around that because we want to impose our perception of love and justice upon God. And as, his, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so his ways and justice is, is higher than ours. Anyway, to curtail the lives of the wicked who refuse to repent after you know, 120 years of appealing to them is presented, I suggest, as an act of divine grace. Incidentally, God sends his reign upon the just and the unjust, and here at Genesis 7, God sends his reign, causes it to reign. We mentioned uh, in the previous talk about angelic involvement with the flood. And it is easy to think that God kind of wound this world up on clockwork and sort of left it tick-tocking away and he's sort of gone off someplace else and God is somehow distant. And when Jesus comes back, the books are opened and God sort of says, right, so what have you guys been up to? Let's have a look. Uh, but not at all. This is a totally wrong idea. God is not far from every one of us. <clears throat> Beyond what at times seems the, the steely silence of the skies, God is actively, passionately working. The water cycle is quite often referred to in the scriptures. And the idea is not that, well, it's just water cycling around. I know that's what it appears like, and it sort of is like that. Um, but that God is actively causing that to happen, sending his reign upon the, the just and the unjust. God is alive. And, I mean, how mechanically, if you wish, uh, is he doing all this? He's doing it through the angels. So then, when we feel that God is far from us, I mean, do what Job did, and let God direct you to nature. You remember the last chapters of Job there, when the red thunderstorm is coming, uh, and he thinks about the animals and, and all that, and he sees that God is not far from him at all. Uh, and, uh, you know, taking comfort in nature is a way of, of seeing the, the immense activity of, of God, and that he is not far from every one of us, and he is not silent, he is not cleared off, uh, he is actively, passionately involved. So then, 
these uh, sons, chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, they have their wives, and uh, they also get into the ark. And this you know, was a huge act of faith, no matter that they were saved partially because of Noah. I mean, there were plenty of other people invited to come into the ark who didn't, who didn't go in. And uh, so why not? Because they didn't have that modicum of faith, that, that base faith which uh, these other people did, which the, the, his wife, the three sons, and, um, and their wives had. So it must have been a pretty big thing for them to marry into this family. Uh, I mean, these people would have been the laughing stock of the whole area. Not only the laughing stock, I mean, people get irritated when someone is going another way to them. The idea that everyone laughed at Noah is true, but I, I believe it would probably, though it's not directly recorded, but I, I think it is almost certain that it went beyond laughing and sniggering it went to positive dislike, I believe. Anyone who is called a preacher of righteousness is just psychologically so that people react to that and, and respond to it very, very poorly. So why then did those people believe when Noah tells them what God had told him and said, you know, I'm building the ark, etc. Why believe him? I mean, why? You know, it would have looked like the guy's a crackpot. I mean, if you see a guy building a, a huge structure and talking about something called rain that you've never seen, and that God's going to destroy this planet, and you've got to come and live uh, live in his ark uh, with a load of animals, uh, why believe that? There must have been a basis for faith, particularly as he kept saying, well, God told me. But, I mean, yeah, that begs the question. Well, how do I know that God told you? you know, I mean, we meet people like that, don't we? You say, oh, yeah, God told me this. God told me, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, how do I know that God told you that? There must have been something which backed up his claim that God told me. <clears throat> and I, I don't perceive what exactly that was, apart from the fact that we are told in First Peter 3, 18-20, that the Spirit of Christ preached at the time of Noah and that Jesus himself went and appealed to imprisoned, spiritually imprisoned people. First of Peter 1.11 says that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. So it doesn't mean that Jesus was pre-existent as a person, it doesn't mean that Jesus himself rocked up and, and said to those young women, well, you know, what Noah's saying is true. The Spirit of Christ was in Noah. It, and it was so strongly in him that it was as if the Jesus of the New Testament who was born of the Virgin Mary uh, whatever, 2,000 years ago it was as if he stood in front of those people in the time of Noah. How? Because in Noah there was the Spirit of Christ and we said I think in our first talk that biblically there is ultimately only one Spirit. Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit the Spirit it's in essence all one and the same that the disposition, the mind, the principles of, of the Lord Jesus Christ were seen in Noah. And that is the only thing that I can think of that would have persuaded those women to believe and to say, sure, we'll come in with you. And don't forget, they, it was maybe harder for those three women than it was for Noah's own children, because, I mean, they had to leave families.
they weren't going along with parental expectation like Noah's sons were. And, uh, you know, we talked about Noah dating, uh, dating his wife and telling her about this big plan that he got, what his life was actually all about, in, in essence. And the sons would have done the same with these girls. That uh, you know, our life is about the ark. Our life is about salvation in Christ. And uh, our life is about getting other people, you know, animals, etc., into Christ and caring for them, gathering all these different types of food, etc., and caring for them in the ark. Now, Peter three eighteen to twenty says, as I have said, that. It was by the Spirit of Christ that, that, that uh, Christ, as it were, was preached through the mouth of Noah to those who once were disobedient. Those who once were disobedient. That implies that actually his preaching had some success. And people who once were disobedient became obedient. Now think that one through. I'll say it again. First of Peter 3, 18-20. But uh, the Spirit of Christ that was in Noah preached and witnessed to the people of his day. And it converted those who, quote, once were disobedient. They were disobedient once, but it implies then they weren't anymore. They became obedient. How did they become obedient? They went into the ark. So who were these people who once were disobedient, but who became obedient by the the, the witness of Noah, the preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 verse 5, by the spirit of Christ that was in him. Who were those people? They were his wife, his three sons, and the wives of his three sons. And assuming that, well, you know, the, the kids grew up after Noah had already started building the ark, started building the ark at 480, they were born when he was 500, so, uh, you know, they grew up with this, this was their ingrained expectation from their, from their, their father. Um, but those three girls didn't grow up like that at all. And it seems to me that maybe those who once were disobedient refers particularly to those three young women. That there were three young women, out of all the people that Noah witnessed to, there were three young women who said, yeah, right, believe you, there, this is the voice of God. We must repent. We, yeah, we're going to be obedient. We're going to come into this ark. So you can marry my sons. Chapter 7, verse 7. We read there the word before. <clears throat> Chapter 7, verse 7. Noah went in and his sons and his wife, his sons' wives with him into the ark because of, or, sorry, not, not before, but because of the waters of the flood. Now, the Hebrew there is in the face of, this idea of panim, face. Um, they went into the uh, the ark because of, in the face of, the waters of the flood. Now again, that would imply that he waited until the very last minute. Maybe this the rabbinic idea that he waited till the water was up to his ankles, maybe that's not quite so wacky. Because it was in the face of the waters that he went in. Not regarding the fact that seven days ago God had said, look, in seven days the water's going to come down, go into the ark and I'll, I'll shut you in. Now, so I, I, I'm going to be out there till the, you know, the very last breath I, I have. I'm going to try and get people in. And so this should really, it's a tremendous example to us. 
that in the face of the waters, he went into the ark. He could have been huddled up in there for seven days. But he desperately wanted a witness. I mean, he wanted a fight to the last cartridge. I mean, he, he right to the very last breath, he wanted a witness. And that should be our spirit. That should be our desire to get people into Christ, to save people to the glory of God. Another way to take that, that he went in there because of the waters, or in the face of the waters, um, it doesn't say because of the rain, but because of the waters. Another way, another thought, I suppose, that arises from that is that actually the waters weren't uh, there. Um, maybe a bit of rain was, but not the actual waters. Huge explosion of the depths under the earth, etc. But he was so sure that this was going to happen that he had the eye of faith. He could look at things which are not as though they are. And that's all that faith is about. Hebrews 11, verse 3, this is how it defines faith. That it is seeing those things which are not as though they are. And Romans 4, 17 says that that's what God does all the time. That he speaks and writes and etc. about things which are not as though they are. Because for him, the, the, the future is so certain. And the connection between Hebrews 11.3 and Romans 4.17 is saying that we should adopt the perspective of God. That faith, if, if you, you know, we talk about faith, but you've got to put meaning into that word. What does this mean? Faith is seeing things that are not as if they are because we are so sure that they're going to happen. So the simple reality is that judgment will come upon this earth. And one day the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ will again stand upon this earth and God's kingdom shall be here upon this planet, on this spot of land where we are now sitting. One day God's kingdom shall be here. And the eye of faith will say, yeah, well, it's as if it's here. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says that Noah was moved with fear and therefore he prepared the ark. Hebrews 11.7, he was moved with fear. He was so sure that this destruction was going to come that it moved him. He was frightened about this idea of a flood. He didn't say, ah, oh, yeah, well, I'll, um, I'll get on with my own life and I'll, yeah, okay, I'll build a little boat. Um, <clears throat> yeah, just in case there's some truth and all that stuff. No, he sold his soul for all that. See, he was moved with fear and he knew this was going to happen. And he believed it. Now, incidentally, that same phrase, moved with fear, is used earlier in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, uh, verse 1. Let us fear, therefore, let us be moved with fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, maybe another illusion of Noah, uh, rest, uh, any of you should seem to, to come short of it. So then, you know, do we believe? I mean, in the most basic terms, do we believe with the faith that really believes and knows and sees things which are invisible as if they are visible? Because Noah did. 7 verse 9, they went in two and two unto Noah into the ark. Again and again, it's emphasis upon Noah, not to Noah and the family, but to Noah. It was his faith which led to the saving of, of his house, uh, his, uh, his family. 
7.15, they went in unto Noah. Well, we, we made this point in the last talk that the animals are described as going in unto Noah, but also that he gathered them. Uh, and this, I, I think, is the wonder of preaching to people, that there is a, a click, there is a moment, in Russian, that there is a, a click, sometimes, between between you and the person that you're preaching to, where you were trying to gather that fella in, and yet God is bringing him in. And that's a wonderful moment, and I think it must have happened with some of these animals, that there was Noah gathering them in, but they came. They went in unto Noah. Um, now, we don't know exactly how the animals were before the flood. I guess they were different, because the fear and dread of mankind came upon the animals, we're told, after the flood. But all the same, a lot of animals are shy, and I, I, they don't particularly like, like mixing with human beings. Why did they come into Noah? Well, I've suggested that for 120 years, Noah was getting to know his audience. He was getting to know the animals, understand them, what sort of food they ate, etc., etc., maybe experimenting with them somewhat. And uh, we said in an earlier talk that this talks about us uh, knowing people, getting to know them. <coughs> Going on then to uh, chapter 7, verse 23, yet again. Only Noah, 7 verse 23, Noah only was left, and they that were with him in the ark. I mean, this is really being emphasized, isn't it? Noah, Noah, Noah. Only he was left, and those who were with him. The focus is so much upon him. So, you know, we understand him uh, being set up as what we would call a type of Christ. Um, <clears throat> difficult to know whether we are represented by the animals that go in there, or whether we are like Noah's family, or, or, or whether Noah is um, representative of, of us personally. And I mean, all these things are true. You can't push these types and symbols too too far. The, the, the general picture, I think, is, is clear. My final point, uh, verse 24, that the water was upon the earth <clears throat> for 150 days, that is five months. You have a reference to that, I think, possibly in Revelation 9, verses 5 and 10, where we've got a, another period of 150 days or five months of torment and trouble that is to come upon the earth in the last days. So then, it's just one of a whole load of indications, as we know, that what has been said, uh, what was uh, written there about Noah, this incident that happened, this is looking forward to what shall happen upon the earth in our last days. That we have got to have the same eye of faith to see those waters as if they are already there, to believe that the Lord Jesus shall return and that we shall be saved because we have sold our soul like Noah did, sold our soul. We've walked out of society in, in that sense like those girls did, like his kids did, like his wife did. We've walked out of all that and said, no, I... I bet I gamble my eternity on on this point. I, I sell my soul, I give all I have on this, that my faith will be turned aside, that faith will be rewarded, that this is all for real, and I will invest my all in building that ark, in going into it myself, 
in encouraging other people to come in there, in thinking how I can care for people, how I can get others into the art, what food I can give them, look after them in there, that this was what filled those people's lives. Even though they had to get on and live their ordinary life, and we suggested in the first talk that Noah's life, Noah's work, uh, was not particularly easy, he was pretty well a, a slave of an unreasonable family, and uh, etc. And as I, I said, we have gambled everything on that. It's not a gamble. It may look like that. It is like that in the eyes of the world, but it's not a bet. It's not a, a jump in the dark. The more we go on, the more we are persuaded that we know whom we have 